Uh, We're going to continue in our series in the book of Mark. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 1. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, maybe you're kind of just on this journey of faith trying to discover what church is all about, what God is all about, what all of this is all about. One, we love that you're here. We love that you're here and that this is a part of your journey trying to discover who God is. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, um, the text is going to be up on the screen so you can follow along with us. We'd also invite you over to the Commons, which is the bookstore coffee shop in the middle of our campus, uh, and you just tell them, I'd like one of the free Bibles, and they'll out fit you with one. If you're a part of this church, you've been a a follower of Jesus for a while, and you don't have your Bible because you forgot it or don't know where it is, you just need to get with the program and bring your Bible to church. But Mark (laughs) chapter 1 is where we're at this morning. Mark, the way that he writes, he writes in, in such a way that he's trying to help us understand who Jesus is. And in his writing, his primary purpose is to describe Jesus in such a way that he promotes loyalty to Jesus and to his teaching. And the way that Mark writes, he does this by telling us about the miracles of Jesus, which we'll see in our passage this morning. Uh, He does this by giving us the words and actions of Jesus, and then also by naming the titles of Jesus. And when Mark does this, it creates a more full, high-definition picture of of Jesus. It's a great way to describe somebody. So, So, for instance, if I were to describe to you my wife, and I said, well, she's about my height, she has brown hair and brown eyes. I think, well, that guy, he really doesn't know his wife very well, or he doesn't care much about her. But if I, if I were to, to use kind of the tactics that Mark employs here to describe my wife, I'd talk about what I consider a miracle every Sunday. She gets three kids, five and under, here, dressed in coordinated outfits, which is, blows my mind. Clean, they smell halfway decent when they arrive, and, and all in order and on time and everything. I, I could talk about the words and actions. I talk about her words of encouragement to me, her counsel to young women in 710, the way that she takes care of our home, the way that she's on mission in our neighborhood, the way that she works part-time from home and helps to contribute. Uh, I, would, I would share with you some of the titles that she has. She's a wife. She's a mom. She's a sister. She's a mentor. She's a friend. And if, so if I communicate to you or describe my wife to you in that way, the way that Mark describes Jesus in this book and in this passage, it gives a, a, a more better form understanding of who Jesus is. And understanding Jesus is so critical for us because Jesus came to explain God. How does the holiness and the glory and the power of God coincide with the love and the mercy and the grace of God? How do those things all fit together? And we see those things in the life and in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Earlier this year, I had a chance to teach at a winter camp for our junior high and high school students. I love that. It was a blast. But I started off our weekend, and I said to them, to the guys, I said, okay, guys, if, uh, if, if we got in a fight, if we got in a fight, how many of you think you could beat me up? And, you know, of course, they raised their hand. It doesn't bother me. But there were a couple middle school girls that raised their hand. That kind of bothered me <laughs> a little bit, although they were bigger than me, so they, they could have. And I, and I said to them, you know what? It doesn't bother me that you underestimate me. But it bothers me if you underestimate Jesus. And church, I think so often we underestimate and we often undermine the authority of Jesus. Authority is a key theme in our, in our text today. You're going to see that word pop up a bit. And, and the interesting thing about a person with or a person of authority is that when you're causing trouble... If a person with or of authority shows up, that has negative connotations. But when you are in trouble, you want a person with or of authority. 
to show up. And the thing about us is that we're both. We're both people who cause trouble, and apart from Jesus Christ, we're people who are in trouble. And so the authority of Christ is good news for us this morning, and we'll see that. And in our text, we're going to see the authority of Jesus exercised in three specific ways, and then we're going to make briefly uh, some, some observations about Jesus, things that we don't want to miss. But let's read our passage together, and then we'll pray and ask God to help us with it this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 21, again, text will be up on the screen. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. This is Jesus. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? It's a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. If you ever have anyone who questions the goodness of Jesus, he heals mother-in-laws. <clears throat> I can say that because mine's not here. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Verse 34 and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. Father God, we thank you for, um, God, just what you've allowed us already to do. Uh, God, you've allowed us to be in a place where we can sing truth about you, we can gather together to learn more about you. God, we can open your word and read it out loud. God, I thank you for um, what you say about the scriptures and that they are true. God, we know that the, the Bible is, is powerful, that it has the ability to um, kind of cut us open and dissect the things that are true from the things that are not true. God, to point out idols in our life, to point out the things that we make bigger than you. God, I thank you for the promise that your word um, goes out, does not return void, means it's active. It accomplishes, God, what you want it to do. And so, God, I rest um, in the promises of what you say about your word, God, not in my ability to say something or, God, um, in the ability to communicate. God, I ask for um, your spirit to move in this room in freedom and in power. God, I pray that you would remove distractions in this next moment here, God. I pray that I would not be a cause of distraction for people. God, I pray um, that whatever is said here brings honor and glory to you and to you alone. God, I pray that it makes you smile. God, I, I always um, pray for help. God, that we would hear from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Last week, we covered verse 15, which verse 15 announces uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And the rest of the chapter kind of takes us through the effects of that kingdom, what that kingdom looks like, that kingdom manifests or made known. 
And all the things that we see in this day here in, our, in these 14 verses, they point to the reality that the kingdom has come and is coming and is arriving with this man, Jesus Christ. All of the things that we see in these 14 verses here, the section we just read, they, they are a display of his kingdom authority. This is, this is one day in the life of Jesus. And we see Jesus prove or show his authority in three specific ways. One, we see him show his authority or power as a teacher. Then we see him show his authority or power as a deliverer. And then lastly, as a healer. Let's look first at Jesus as the teacher. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. The they, there is Jesus and his disciples, his followers. Capernaum, uh, Matthew tells us that this, is a, this city is kind of a home base, kind of a hub for Jesus as the basis for his, his ministry. And the synagogue in ancient Jewish world was kind of a place that would function like an assembly hall to allow for teaching and discourse and dialogue on the, the law or the Torah. And if a local city like Capernaum had uh, 10 Jewish men aged 13 and up, they could form a synagogue for the purpose of talking about the law. And so men would gather together, and then oftentimes a traveling teacher would, would show up and just talk about the law, and then people would have a dialogue on that. So that's why Jesus, this is a very common thing, so Jesus could just kind of walk in and start teaching, but they notice very early on there's something very unique about this teacher's teaching. Look at verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, the scribes were members of the religious elite. They were supposed to be experts on studying and knowing the law. And, and, and scribes would teach the law, but they'd often teach in such a way that they would appeal to ancient Jewish traditions as their ultimate authority. So, in other words, in their teaching, it would often say, well, well, I studied Rabbi so-and-so on, on this text, and he said such-and-such such about that, that text. So, so their teaching was an appeal to an authority that was outside of themselves, but what the people experience in Jesus is something entirely different. There's just there's something about Jesus. He, he, he speaks not as if he's just studied what's been written about the law. He, he speaks as if he wrote it. If, if you look at Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, and if you're unfamiliar with the teaching of Jesus or the person of Jesus, you need to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John because he's amazing and brilliant and genius, and the things that he says are just in, in, incredible. But, but, but there's places in, in, the, in the Scripture where he's, he'll, he'll say things like, you've heard it said, and then he says, well, I say. So, so you have scribes who have authority that's derived from a, a Jewish father, and you have Jesus who has authority derived from the father. For he's one with the Father. Mark, in, in his writing, he's more of a sports center kind of highlight kind of guy, so he doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus says, but he wants us to understand how the people felt about what Jesus was saying. Verse 22, he tells us that they were astonished at his teaching. Here, Mark is amazed at the comprehension of Jesus, the, the vast scope of his knowledge, his insight into humanity and into life. And that's a description of how Jesus taught. He, his words had this ring of truth that were acknowledged by everybody who heard him speak. It was this self-authenticating truth that corresponded to this inner conviction in each person who heard him. And so that they knew when Jesus was talking that he knew the, the secrets of, of life. In the original language there, the word astonished means they were struck out of their minds. And it carries with it this idea of alarm and, and, and fear. And good gospel-centered teaching does this. It, 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 it causes 
fear and alarm in the heart of the skeptic. Uh, the, the skeptic who says, I don't believe. But what if what you're saying is true? I, I don't believe, but, but what, if it's, what if it's true? What if it's true? Good, good teaching does that. It, 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 causes, it causes that alarm. It causes that fear. In, in, uh, in, in 710, the ministry that I get to, to serve, it's not uncommon for college students, young adults, to kind of carve their own way. Some of them are experiencing and expressing freedom for the very first time. And so it's not uncommon to hear these stories of kids who are either raised in church or kind of had been raised in a home, a, a Christian home. They at one point professed Christ, at one point had faith, and now they're out kind of on this path of self-discovery for something new. Um, and, and a lot of times it ends up with them leaving the church, leaving the faith. Um, that's one of the reasons, by the way, why we have a ministry like 710. And, and, and it's, it's fairly common. And I hate it. I think it's the thing about what I have to do standing in the gap that I hate to see happen the, the most. Um, the, this past year, there was a guy in our ministry, and I love this guy. I consider him a friend. He served with us, and um, he went down this particular path and um, you know, said, I, you know, I know I professed to be a believer once, but I'm not a believer. I don't think I ever was. And so I, I, we went to lunch, and I, I sit across the table. And that, that is one of the benefits, is that I get to sit across the table from uh, these young adults who say, oh, yeah, I'm leaving the church, or I don't believe anymore. And I get to tell them I love them. I get to tell them how much Jesus loves them. Um, I, I get to speak truth to them. And so we had this lunch, and it's really painful for me, because um, I do. I love this guy. And uh, and, and we're talking, he said, you know, I, I, I don't believe, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but there is something about the way that you teach what you believe, and there's something about the way that you try to line your life up with what you say you believe that haunts me. And I thought, thank you, God, because that's hope for me. That's encouraging to me. He said, you know, I don't believe, but I look at you and I listen to you and I'm, and I'm watching people that are close to you. And, and, and there's just something about the gospel that haunts me. That's a great place to be. That's a great place to be. Good teaching. Good teaching is where the heart is unveiled. And when I'm talking about good teaching, I'm talking about the content of the meat of, of, of the teaching, because good teaching has very little to do with a communicator. Because good teaching gets out of the way so that the Word of God and the Spirit of God can do its work. And so church, uh, let us not be a people that try to domesticate preaching. And here's what I mean by that. When we domesticate preaching, we try to turn it into our pet so that it says what we want it to say, so that it does what we want it to do, so that it makes us feel the way that we want to uh, feel. Let's not domesticate preaching. God has been so gracious to us here, I, I think, to allow us a legacy of holding fast to the authority of Scripture. I, I really do believe that. But let's not be so arrogant or so cocky to think that it's not one generation from slipping away. When we hold on to the truth, we hold on to the truth in humility and in thanksgiving, not that we discovered it, but realizing that it found us, that it sought us out when we were completely unworthy. We see in verse 23 that the teaching of Jesus causes a ruckus. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. And here we, we saw Jesus with authority as a teacher. Now we're going to see Jesus with authority as a deliverer. 
And this, in, this encounter here, it kind of serves as the acid test of the authority of Jesus. How's Jesus going to handle? How's Jesus going to deal with demons? The man stands up and he cries out, look at verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There are no demons that are confused about who Jesus is. And they all know what he's capable of. They ask, have you come to destroy us? And and it's more than just a confession about the identity of Jesus. This is a moment of confrontation because there's something that's significant about the demon saying the full name of Jesus. In the the spiritual realm, this is a a type of tactic to express dominion. Look, Look at verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Be silent. There's a strong commanding authority. First century encounters with cosmic forces of darkness and evil, they would often have these incantations and calling on names, these kind of verbal battles, but Jesus stops it all. He doesn't let it go any further because Jesus is not in a power struggle with demons. God is not in a power struggle with evil. Evil exists, but God is not thwarted by it. He's not afraid of it. He's not confounded or confused by it. He has ultimately defeated it. I'm not going to get into this too much today, but we we do know that spiritual warfare is very real. Spiritual warfare is, is, is very real. The, earlier last year, I had an opportunity to go with uh, some leaders from Redemption Church to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We've got some partners there that are working with at-risk children and families. And uh, one night, they took us to the red light district in Addis Ababa. Red light district is like red light districts in, in a lot of cities around the world. But, but the, in Addis, it's 10, kind of 10 square blocks. Um, and they're narrow streets and row after row of these small closets, like barely, barely big enough for you to walk in. They're made of this core corrugated steel. And inside these closets, there's a single light hanging, a single red light bulb that's hanging from, from a wire. And inside those closets where that red light is, in rows and rows on these streets are these young girls. And most of them had been abducted and forced into prostitution, sexual slavery. And that's why we partner with groups there to bring rescue and freedom to these girls. And they took us down this street, and I'll never forget this night um, because I felt evil pressing in. I felt evil kind of pushing in. I, I used this illustration last hour. I don't know if it'll work here, but I remember in Star Wars when they're in that garbage thing and they're getting kind of pushed in. Okay, there's a few, few geeks like me out there. Well, it had that feeling. In, in fact, there were, there were about four or five of us walking down the street, and, and I remember I had a physical reaction. I, I shrugged my shoulders in as I walked, being hemmed in, being pushed in by the presence of evil. Spiritual warfare is, is real, and it's, and it's palpable. In, in his book, The Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis, he has this dialogue between these two demons, and he talks about how uh, Christians react to, to demons or the spiritual warfare, and he says that they, they either have disbelief, meaning they totally ignore that they exist, or they believe excessively. Everything's a demon, and the demon has caused everything. There's a demon behind every corner. But the point briefly here this morning, is, is that spiritual warfare exists. The scripture tells us in the book of Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And our weapons of war are prayer and the word of God. 
And we see that modeled in the ministry of Jesus. So the only point that I really want to make in the spiritual warfare this morning is what are you doing about the warfare? If our weapons are are prayer and the word of God, are you engaged in those things? Are you engaged in the weapons of warfare, a warfare that is very real? Verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. This verse shows us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom that brings with it judgment against any and all evil. The king will judge and defeat evil. Verse 27 through 28, read with me. And and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A, A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So here we're seeing that the kingdom of God is advancing. Liberty is coming with it. Jesus brings authority and power with him. It's it's the fulfillment of prophecy that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's something unique. It's not just a king who is just all power, just all authority. There is a kindness that accompanies the authority and the power with Jesus. What good is it to be powerful if you do not use your power for good? It's no good. What what good is it to be good if you do not have the power to do good? It's no good. But Jesus is both. He's always powerful, and he's always good. I I think it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't employ marketing tactics his fame spreads out not because he tells everyone, hey, go out and get the word out. In fact, his command so far is to keep quiet, be silent. It's a, kind of a stark contrast to how we think about ministry today. But the word on Jesus is out, and the word is that he is a savior unlike anyone you've ever seen. And his message is unlike anything you've ever heard. So we see Jesus as a teacher. We see Jesus as a deliverer. In verse 29, we see Jesus as a healer. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve. After a long day of teaching and casting out demons, Jesus retreats from the crowd, but he doesn't retreat from serving. Uh, in, in Luke's gospel, Luke's a physician, when he records this, when he talks about this, he talks about Peter's mother-in-law being uh, v- ill with a very high fever, which meant that she would have been uh, quite sick. She would have been very sick. I just think it's very interesting that she's healed and immediately she like turns into my Italian grandmother. She's like, who wants to eat? I want to serve you. How can I find you? So the guys in the preaching collective really wanted to make a big deal about like her getting up and serving, but I'm smarter than them, so I'm not going not gonna to stand on that for very much. But this pattern here that we see with, this, with, with her, it does remind me of us and our encounter with Jesus. Because when Jesus finds us, we're very sick, useless, no real hope of healing. But yet he heals us, he lifts us up, he allows and empowers us to serve. Look at verse 32 as the story comes to an end. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed 
by demons. So sundown marks the end of the, the Sabbath. It's about 6 p.m. on Saturday. And so um, based on their understanding of the law, they now were permitted to move about the city and come to Jesus with their needs. And, and this is very unique because most rabbis, most teachers did not go looking for people that needed help. But Jesus came for those that the religious overlooked. His target market were those that were sick and marginalized, outcasts. And these people perceive what most people perceive who encounter Jesus for the very first time, the uniqueness of this Savior. Look at verse 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Notice again the authority of Jesus in verse 34. He, he not only drives the demons out, but he doesn't allow them to speak. He commands them not to utter a word. Looking at this story and looking at this text, um, you, you, could be, you could be like this. You could, you could be like the demons and be afraid of Jesus, or you could be amazed like the crowd, but still not be a follower of Jesus. Just because you are familiar with Jesus doesn't mean you are a follower of Jesus. I think back how Tim ended his message last week. And, and if, if you've missed any of these messages, you need to go to our website, redemptionaz.com. Click on the Gilbert Congregation. Track with us so you can be up to speed, on the, especially when we're in a series like this. But last week, Tim ended his message and, and he said, ask God to confront your version of Christianity. Ask God to confront your version of following Jesus. And then ask him to give you his version. I don't know if anybody did that last week. <laughs> ask God to confront your version of following. If it's lacking, say, God, give me your version of following Jesus. There's three things that we don't want to miss about Jesus. We don't want to be so familiar with Jesus that we miss these important things about him. Three things as we, as we close. First, we, we don't want to miss the assault on Jesus. We don't want to miss the assault on Jesus. Jesus shows up at the synagogue. He's teaching with authority like no one has ever heard before, and literally all hell breaks loose. And we know that the world is no friend to the authoritative truth of Jesus Christ we need to be reminded of that because the world stands against the followers of Jesus as well. In this passage, the assault on Jesus, it comes from two directions. It comes from demons, and it comes from dead religion. If you look in verse 23, there's a really important word in front of synagogue. It says, their synagogue. It wasn't Jesus' synagogue. It was their synagogue. Talking about religious leaders who know the scripture but don't know God. And throughout the gospel narrative, Jesus tells them that. Jesus confronts these religious leaders with that. And they wage war on him. So the first thing we don't want to miss is we don't want to miss the assault on Jesus. The, the, the second thing is we don't want to miss the aim of Jesus. We don't want to miss the aim of Jesus. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God, to call people to repent and believe the gospel, to believe the good news about who Jesus is. The whole city gathers at, at, the, at the door of Jesus, but don't miss what they're gathering for him to do. They gather because a miracle worker is in town. But what the people miss, and, and what we often miss as well, is that the healings and the deliverings of Jesus are intended to function as windows into who Jesus is. You don't go up to a window and just stare at the window. 
I have a sister who lives in Manhattan. My wife and I, if we get a chance to go visit her, we like to stay and try to find a hotel. We stay in a hotel. And you want a hotel when you're in New York City, downtown, you want a hotel that has a great view, right? So nobody goes and gets in their hotel and says, man, what amazing windows. No, because the windows are designed for you to stare through. And the, and the, the miracles are to be stared at, uh, not to be stared at, they are to be stared through. Like windows, they are to be stared through because they show that Jesus Christ is God himself. So don't miss it because miracles attest to the identity of Jesus. Miracles are a sign validating the power and the authority of Jesus, and they're a sign of the kingdom of God breaking through. So we don't want to miss it. Jesus did not come simply to make people happy and healthy. Although I think followers of Jesus should be the happiest people. He, he came to call people to a right relationship with the Father. The, the God that their sin had separated them from. God came to, Jesus came to put them back together. He came to call people to a spiritual health and joy that they could never attain on their own. As followers of Jesus, we don't exist simply to see people be happy or healthy or even simply just to see people be good. Our essential task is the same as Christ, to call people to repentance and believe in the good news of Jesus. Not just tell them about the good news. And get this distinction. Get this distinction, church, because we're not just simply to tell them about the good news, but we need to tell them and show them how the gospel, how Jesus is good news to them. So in the places where you live, in the places where you work, in the place where you go to school, in the places that you hang out, in the clubs that you're in, in the activities that you're involved in, how are you telling and showing the people there that the gospel, that Jesus is good news to them and to their life? We want to see people restored to God. That's the aim of Jesus. That's the aim of the church. Okay, how? Okay, because I, 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 I thought about that, and I get a little bit hung up on, on this. So God has all the authority. God has all the power to accomplish his purpose for, for glory. So what does it matter what, what we do? What is the relationship between God's authority and my life? Look at, look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It'll be up on the screen. Listen how Jesus starts this conversation. He says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So now you go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So in verse 18 there, Jesus kind of lays out what seems like a non sequitur argument. He claims that all the authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So, so if he's got all the authority, he's got all the power, then why does he have to have us go and tell and make disciples of all nations? Have you ever wondered, well, why, don't, why doesn't he just assert that power? Why doesn't he just assert that authority? Like, like he asserted his power authority over the storms, over sickness, over demons. Why, why employ the middlemen? Why the underqualified, sometimes inept middlemen? Why the fisherman? Why the tax collector? Why the zealot? Why you? Why me? Why us? Why does, why does, he, why does he do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 tells us why. It tells us that God does not simply use us in spite of our weakness, but he uses us because of our weakness. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says this. And this is one of my favorite verses. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's us. 
to show that the surpassing power, the surpassing authority belongs to God and to not us. It is his It is the intention of God that we be used in our frailty because in our frailty, God's strength is most starkly displayed. God uses broken vessels to manifest his power, making very obvious that all glory is due him, not us. His power surpasses our fumblings and failures and struggles and weakness to make it abundantly clear that whatever is accomplished through us to magnify Jesus is not a result of our doing. God chose to use us not because we are great, but because he is gracious. God's sovereign. He doesn't need us. He could display his power much more neatly and much more efficiently without us, but that's never been the point. That's never been the point. God brings in this dirty, dirty, broken pottery because he's a relational God He's eternally, wonderfully the great three-in-one. He doesn't intend to reveal himself to us or through us without communing with us in the process. There's an article I read about this week, and this guy had this great line. He said that the, the power or the authority of God is surpassing, but it's not bypassing. I love that. The authority of God in your life is surpassing, but it's not bypassing. God invites us in, and he invites us to delight in him. He enlists us to invite others to delight in him. And when we do that, we, gra- we gain a greater capacity to delight in him. We marvel at how he works in the hearts of those that we serve. And, and when we uh, see God working in the people that we serve, it fosters and cultivates in us gratitude and thanksgiving and worship and praise. When we pray for people to encounter God's glory, we're not only reminded of his beauty and his glory, but, but we see him once again as worthy of our, our worship. We see him as the one who continues to draw worshipers, continues to draw the, these jars of clay and the mission of making him known. God is on mission to redeem the world, and he redeemed us to be a part of it, church. Don't miss the aim of Jesus. We see the assault on Jesus. We see the aim of Jesus. And lastly, we see that they were amazed at Jesus. They were amazed at Jesus. His authority throughout this text astonishes and amazes people that are encountering him for the very first time. And it raises a question for you and for me this morning. When was the last time you looked at Jesus and you were amazed? When's the last time that you looked at Jesus and you were astonished? When's the last time that you were caught up in holy fear and wonder at who he is and what he has done. How much time, Christian, do you spend meditating on the person and the promises of Jesus? You're like, oh, meditate. That's one of those churchy words. I don't meditate. I don't sit in a room, quiet, dark, by myself. I don't do that. All right. How many of you know how to worry in here? Anybody here know how to worry? Yeah. Worrying is when you take an idea or concept or an an, an issue, often irrational, and you mull it over in your head over and over and over and over and over again. That's worrying. Meditating on something uses the exact same muscles as worrying. So if you can worry about something, you can meditate. You take a truth about God and who he is. You take an attribute of God. You take a, a part of his character 
and you mull it over in your head and in your heart over and over and over and over and over again to where it dominates your conversation, it dominates your mind, it dominates your heart. It, it's your waking thought. It's the last thought you have in your head before your head hits the pillow. You meditate on the goodness of God. How often do you meditate on the person and the promises of Jesus? I hope we haven't gotten so familiar with Jesus and so familiar with his story that we forget just how good the good news is. God, holy, infinite, eternal, all-powerful, creator, God, puts on flesh, skin and bones, steps into our mess, walks among us, lives a life that we could never live. He pushes back evil. He teaches us to love our enemies. He teaches us to love those that no one else notices or that they just flat out ignore. Jesus is a king who stoops low to serve, but at the same time, he holds the universe together with the power of his word. But yet this king lays down his life so that humans, mere mortals, can humiliate him, spit on him, mock him, beat him, torture him, eventually murder him in some garbage dump on the outskirts of town. Also that rebellious, selfish, sinful children could be reunited with their glorious and holy father. And after all that, he conquers Satan, he conquers sin, he conquers death and the power of his resurrection. And the scripture tells us that right now, he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding and mediating on our behalf. A constant reminder of his extravagant sacrifice and amazing love and abounding grace. Saying, they're mine, they're mine, they're mine. And if that wasn't enough, and it's more than enough already, but he promises to those who are his children an inheritance. There's an inheritance that comes with this as well. And, and if that wasn't enough, he said, you know what? I'm designing a very specific and unique place for you so that you can be with me for all of eternity. When was the last time that you were amazed at the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he promised. Do you understand? Do you see how this news, how this good news trumps all other news? I know what your week was like. This week you got bad news. Some of you got really bad news this week. This news trumps that news. Some of you had good news this week. This news trumps that news. This is the news that you rally your whole life around. This is the, this is the news that you, you come underneath. This is the news that makes you astonished and amazed. When was the last time that you were absolutely captivated by the person and the promises of Jesus Christ? And, and Christian, if, you, if your life lacks this wonder, lacks this amazement, I just have two things for you to consider. Consider your time in prayer. Consider your time in the word of God. Maybe it's annoying that those are always the same two things, but those are the two things. 
And we see that in the life of Christ. He's always speaking the word of God, or he's in time, he retreats in times of prayer. Verse 35, I'm going ahead. But ver ver verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. This is Jesus. And there he prayed. That's the model for us. When was the last time that you were amazed at the person, the promises of Jesus Christ? Church, I hope that we never become too familiar with Jesus, that we're not a people of wonder at who he is, that we're not a people who are amazed at who he is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you um, that you give us a chance like this, God, to, to look at your son, Jesus, look at what he has done, look at who he is. And God, we, we thank you for Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is love and peace and mercy and justice and power. He is bread to those who are starving. He is water to those who are dying of thirst. He is the king. He is a lamb. He has all authority and all power in heaven and earth. And instead of using it to destroy us, he uses it to save us. God, I, we confess just how often we are so easily distracted. And God, I just pray that in these next moments as we get our hearts ready for communion and God we, we stand to worship you God that you would just once again stir up in us in a powerful way an affection for you God that's just bigger and greater and stronger than all other affections in our life God would we truly be a people that are amazed of you and God would it just permeate into every aspect of our lives God, would we be known as a people who are in absolute wonder at who you are and what you've done and what you promised to complete. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray.